Hello, you're listening to Drawn to the Flame, a podcast for fans of Arkham Horror, the card game. We're sometimes fortnightly, we're sometimes monthly. I'm your host, Frank, and today I'm joined by... It's me, Peter. Hello, Frank. Hi, Peter. How are you doing? Doing really well. Much better than last week. Buzzy. Don't know why I said it like that. Yeah, Uh, yeah, no... as we've been releasing episodes fortnightly recently. Yeah. Much better than last week. Yeah. It makes even less sense than it made before. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I mean, I'm much better. I can neither we- confirm nor deny. I'm much yeah. better the- than I was the week after we released the previous episode. Oh, that's good Obviously, to know. What that is good to know. Yeah. Uh, I have also got, I've, there's a cat on me who will mm-hmm. uh, jump down at some point. So if there's any, I know people like to, to comment on the Discord of time before first cat. Yeah. Start uh, your stopwatches now. Exactly. He, he is on my knee, so you, if you listen very carefully, you might just pick up some purring on your microphone. He's very content. What are we talking about this week, Frank? This week we're talking about failing forwards. Yes. And when we did our episode on action economy and efficiency, there's a couple of times when you said, oh, well, this is building up to another episode we've got, so yeah. we're cracking on and doing that topic as well. So rather than doing the classic drawn to the flame thing of not returning to a topic for six months and then having to spend ages saying, do you remember when we talked about X? We're doing, we're doing them back to back. We're diving in. We were just talking about X, actually. <laughs> we were just hey. talking about X. Yeah, X. God, the jokes com. just don't stop coming. I'm drawn to the flame. Indeed. So, yeah. Failing forward. Failing forwards. How reward mechanics incentivize play. That's just a, like, a lovely, simple, delicious, crunchy topic. Yeah. What does so, it mean, though? In, yeah, what does it mean? What is failing forwards? Is it failing forward or failing forwards? I think in American it would be failing forward. In British it would be failing forwards. Cool. What would you prefer? Failing forwards. Yeah. Failing forward. So my understanding of that term is the idea, the image that always comes to mind in my head is the scene from Hot Fuzz when they're chasing uh, a a suspect in the lovely sleepy town of Sandford and... Simon Pegg's character runs across gardens and vaults multiple wooden fences. And then Nick's Frost character tries to do the same thing, trips over the first fence, then barrels through the second fence and ends up just (laughs) completely flattening the third fence. I think of that as an example of failing forwards. They've both ended up at the same place. One of them has done it very successfully, maybe even efficiently, you might say. Mm -hmm. And the other has crunched their way through every obstacle along the way and... Pretty sure he makes it to the end. I hope that this would be a bad example if he doesn't. But yeah, that's my idea of failing forwards. What do you think of when... My understanding of this phrase comes from RPG circles, which is that mm-hmm. when you impose some kind of skill check, you use the opportunity of a failure of that skill check to roll forwards into something else interesting other than a straight failure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it can be some kind of qualified success of that failure. Mm-hmm. So you do the thing, but something more excitingly bad happens. Mm-hmm. Or potentially just that you end up in a more interesting situation because of your failure to do the action. Yeah. You try to pick this lock on this important... Why is it always picking locks? I was thinking of picking locks as well. Were you? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Weird. So, so you could say there's... I don't know, a negotiation to 
release some of your friends from prison. Mm-hmm. And Pass will convince the prison card you can do that. But a failure then gets you arrested. Maybe that's an example. And then, then you've got a stage of prison break from inside the prison. Or there might be some option which is a qualified success. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll let them go, but you've got to stay in their place kind of thing. Yeah. So rather As than, opposed to a roadblock failure. Yes. You just get turned away. says no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of the dangers you could have if you're doing any kind of mystery adventure in a role-playing game is that you lock your your clues for the path forward behind skill checks that the players can fail. If you need something to happen for the for the narrative to progress, don't ever make an option for that not to happen. <laughs> it seems yeah, obvious, yeah. but it's like if if the vital clue they need is in a locked briefcase or in a locked bureau, mm. don't make it an option not to be able to pick the lock to get it. An alternate way round isn't the same as failing forwards. That's mm. just you know we've still got the same roadblock. We just need to get, go around it in a different way. Mm-hmm. I like the. And I'm not as experienced in role-playing games as you are, but I really like the hunter versus hunted and how this ties into this. So that that's the idea that if you need your players to hunt down a certain thing and they don't do it for whatever reason, either they fail to do it or they're unwilling to do it, you need a way of switching it to them being hunted. Oh, that's because cool. otherwise, otherwise what happens is exactly that. You're like, right, the information is in the library and the players all decide, let's not go to the library, we'll go back to the boarding house. <laughs> like, ah, shit. So then you need to have someone come to the boarding house and confront them or bring that stuff so that you know if, if they won't go to it, it will come to them. Yeah. We have in Arkham both failing forwards and roadblock failure. You know, the, pulling the tentacle is in, in gameplay terms an experience where you're just being hit with a no, that didn't happen. I take my massive attack with the vicious blow, with the stunning blow, everything else is piled in there, it's going to be huge. I pull a tentacle. There's not a way of saying, well, actually, that did work out, apart from, say, playing oops. But broadly speaking, there are times in gameplay terms where it's just a no. Yeah. But then when we zoom out, even at the start of the game, Nate and Maxine were talking about the fact that the campaign continues no matter the outcome of individual scenarios. And that was quite important. That was a selling point of the game that it's not you must complete the gathering before you're allowed to uh, win the gathering before you're allowed to play Midnight Masks. It was, no, 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 you play the scenario and whatever your outcome, the campaign continues. Yeah, and, and it's not even necessarily failing forwards. It's mm. the, if it's almost, the failure doesn't matter, which is, mm-hmm. it, it's sort of a tangential concept or a parallel concept to failing forwards. Failing forwards, there's the implication that something more interesting happens when you fail yes. or something mm-hmm. else interesting happens for when you fail. And that does happen in Arkham that sometimes doing the unexpected or, or taking a different path can lead to interesting things happening. Path to Carcosa. Yes. If you want the no doubt, the neither doubt nor conviction. Yeah. Well, yeah. You need to fail. I think at least one, if not two scenarios, because it's in the resolution of scenarios that you gain doubt and conviction. Yeah, And so it's only when you get no resolution that you avoid those things and you can arrive with under the threshold of doubt and conviction for Dim Carcosa. But actually... And that's, yeah, that is definitely an example of failing forwards to getting that much more fascinating ending yeah. than either doubt or conviction. So, but, but the, the alternative is that actually failure doesn't matter. No matter what happens during the course of a scenario, then mm. 
you continue on with the story anyway. Mm. And it's such a such an interesting kind of concept when so much of the theming around Arkham is that we're all doomed, things are gonna fail. Mm. Your actions are pointless. Yeah. Actually you you can keep going. The narrative will keep going no matter what you do. Maybe ultimately mm. there's a poor narrative result. You know, maybe the universe gets devoured. It's the end of all things. <laughs> that can mm-hmm. happen. <laughs> but, but you know, in terms of the game, your decisions and your failures don't have a, an impact on your... often have an impact on your progression through the story. Yeah, you get to keep playing. You get more story, you get more things. You sent me a very interesting video by a game designer. Just Josh Sawyer. Josh Sawyer, there we go. I was going to say Josh who's designed things like Neverwinter Nights and was talking about Baldur's Gate 3. But one of the points that he was making is that in CRPGs, when there's no Games Master, Dungeon Master there to actually enable failing forwards, one of the things you have when you fail an encounter is essentially you just have to load your save game and try again. Yes. And we, almost throughout the entire life of the game, for Arkham, we haven't had that. There is a fascinating example of that in Scarlet Keys, which I won't go into here. But broadly speaking, you don't have that if you fluff the scenario, all that happens is you're told to play the scenario again. It's the opposite of that. The promise of the game is that you still get some story. You might see story that you've never seen before because it's for failing a scenario rather than succeeding. And the campaign continues, which, yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. It's so different from so many other games what we learn about what games are like that you would just you get story the reward of story is not tied to <laughs> success or failure yeah and and this really gets to the root of what i wanted to talk about in this episode frank which mm. is that the 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 if you'll if will you permit me to go into the reward mechanics incentivizing play yeah and please, and yeah. The, the flip side of that as well so so uh, this this kind of concept I got from a video by Camster, who's a really good video essayist on video games. One of the games he talked about quite a while ago was Spec Ops The Line. And he talks about this concept of mechanics contextualising play, or win states contextualising play, uh, which I think is sort of the same thing as reward mechanics, as they tie into that. Mm-hmm. If, if you imagine a really simple game, the end of the game is getting to the end of the game is good. Anything which stops you getting to the end of the game is bad. So having to reload and go back, that's further away from the end. So it's bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like for most games, this this very simple... So, so any act which pushes you towards the end of the game is therefore almost a moral good within the, the fiction of the world you're playing in. Mm-hmm. With, with games that have no narrative, so like a football match... <laughs> um, this isn't a problem. If very simplistic or yeah, very simplistic games or games that say are in the fantasy genre, actually that you know it's not a huge problem uh, from a kind of moral point of view. But when you start to look at like military games, which have a very high fidelity towards real life, mm. you can then say that whatever act your character is doing in the game is almost a moral good and justified because it's pushing you towards the win state. And Wednesday is where we're all meant to get to when we're playing games. Mm. So, you know, <laughs> there are games where you commit war crimes. And yeah. not, I'm not making that up. There are. There's literally games where you commit war crimes, where you kind of execute prisoners and all this kind of stuff. And 
because you're playing through a game and you're trying to get to the end, any of that behavior is sort of implicitly condoned by the game itself. Mm-hmm. And it can get into very weird areas. And actually, where I came into the context of understood this this kind of concept, the video on Spec Ops The Line is a, is a game that comments on that. And the game is constantly telling you, you know, what you're doing is not good. And you get to the end and you're not a hero. You're the bad guy. You were always the mm-hmm. bad guy all the way through the game. Yeah. You just took actions and it, and it lifts some of the most horrific things you do in the game from real examples in other games mm-hmm. and kind of tricks you into doing them <laughs> to yeah. make a comment yeah. on this idea that, that win states push you towards, towards the end of the game. It's fascinating because then the goal of playing the game is to reach the win state. It's not to have fun. Yes. This is the, the counter of a game that you have to reload your save multiple times. That ceases to be pleasurable to many people. It starts to be a burden when one might argue that a game that encourages you to spend a lot of time playing it is more enjoyable. Well, yes. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? Well, yeah. yeah. But, but what I would say is you're encouraged to find the acts you're having fun doing or the acts you're doing in the game to be fun because that's the mechanics of the game, that's a fun game. But you're not encouraged to think about the, the whether what you're doing is right or wrong because implicitly the game is saying what you're doing is right because you're getting closer to the end. So so that that was the kind of background to this. And what I, the, the angle that Josh took in that, in that video was that if you've got a, like a CRPG where you get to an encounter and you can fail the encounter and then you're forced to reload, that's bad because that's moving you away from the end of the game. Mm. And actually, most people don't find failing encounters like that and having to replay them fun. There's no that's mechanic that's right, by which to say you fail this combat encounter. Okay, so something more interesting happens. If that happens, it happens vanishingly rarely. I can think of an example if you want an example. Mm, sure. In Planescape Torment, which is one of my favourite mm. CRPGs, you play an immortal character. The whole point of your character is that they're unable to die. Yeah. Uh, and the, the game is largely about solving the mystery of why that came to pass. There are certain encounters in the game where you can complete them by dying, which would be seen in other games as a fail state. Yeah. So there's a bit where you need to get some information from a gang of thieves and you confront them and then you can try and integrate yourself into the gang, get the information that way, I think. But the easier way to do it is to antagonize them. One of them kills you and as you lie there, not dead, they start talking about what their plans are and you can just eavesdrop mm-hmm. on them because they think you're dead. So a lot of people might have been like, oh, I've been killed, I'll reload the game. Actually, that leads to something more interesting happening if you stay dead because you know you can't die. Yes, yeah, so, so what, what you get into then is that in order to avoid that situation, you're encouraged to optimise your character, to really play something that's not going to have that problem, to, to push yourself ahead of the power curve, mm-hmm. because then you won't have those problems. And actually... I came to this encounter, I had to beat this difficult combat, and the person killed me. So then I had to reload and I've even realised that my character just can't handle this situation. So I'm going to build a better character with better stats, with better gear, because I don't want to be hit by that. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And and if, if you start off the game in an unoptimized or I'll say like a non-viable position, 
the power gap at lower level characters in role playing games tends to be much smaller. But as you level up, that gap increases the more you go. Mm-hmm. So you might get where you might have a slightly underpowered character at the start of the game, but you can still get through encounters. At the end of the game, you might be woefully underprepared and you're playing every encounter 20 times, um, even just against, like, you know, a band of goblins. Yeah. And of course, the opposite happens. If you tune above where the developer's balanced for, you can be massively ahead by the end of the game and you're absolutely crushing everything. But why do I want to take the risk that that's going to happen? This is kind of a window into what power gaming looks like. So yeah. I want to spend that time up front to make sure I'm not going to be in that position. Yeah. And Josh Sawyer's video is on power gaming as well, on min maxing and this kind of thing. Mm. That it's not simply someone wanting to crush it. It's that the game itself might incentivize not, you know, might incentivize playing in that way. Might incentivize preparing in that way. We even seen it, and I can't speak in a lot of detail about this, but something like this happened in Lord of the Rings LCG, mm. where the because in Lord of the Rings LCG you can build a new deck for any particular scenario you face, and as deck builders got better and built more and more efficient and more powerful decks, what then happened was that the developers made harder scenarios over a period of years and that then meant that to beat those scenarios you needed to play the powerful decks and it created a situation where there wasn't necessarily space for experimentation. I mean, I'm sure there were still experimenters out there but it crowded out that idea and the the norm, if we can call it that, became that you played certain highly tuned, efficient decks to handle situations. This is one of the overlaps with what we talked about the other week, isn't it? Where it's, yeah. is, is it rude to be bad at World of Warcraft? Mm-hmm. The kind of the meta becomes... Is it, it? I think in that video they talk about instrumental play. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Is that, am I using the term correctly? I think so, yeah. The expectation in the community about what is playing right, right or wrong as opposed to the actual experience of playing. Because in World of Warcraft or in Lord of the Rings, you can decide to go off and do whatever you like and you can derive enjoyment however you like, except that there are social norms and expectations and you might encounter a community in either of those games that, broadly speaking, suggests playing in a different way. Mm. And that's there where you get into the difficulty of it. And I think that similar in Arkham, we don't have it as much in the spaces that I inhabit online, but the idea that I might build a deck that I'm just trying out a load of cards and then I just go and have a fun time with it, that I think is more welcome. Partly the story continues and maybe I might share that in terms of what story experiences I have yeah. as opposed to here is a report on whether or not these cards are good. Yeah. Which, yeah, very different. But I, I think if if we then, yeah, if we bring it back to Arkham mm-hmm. and we look at what I'll call reward mechanics... So we've talked about how you don't have that same pressure whereby if you fail a scenario, you've got to play it again. Mm-hmm. Because I think what that would do would be push people into situations where they, they're they much more focused on the challenges of a particular scenario with their deck. Yeah, yeah. I don't even know what failure in a scenario would look like. I'm, I'm describing very casually a very different game when I say that. yeah. Yeah. But there are reward mechanics in Arkham, and I would say probably victory points form that. Mm-hmm. So there's there's an idea that you might have like an optimal resolution for a scenario as well. I'm doing bunny ears mm-hmm. around that. Mm-hmm. So yeah. 
a better solution, probably one that gives you more victory points or leads to a, a more positive narrative solution. So that might be something you're aiming for. It might give you a leg up in the next scenario as well or something along those lines. Absolutely. You get the, the powder of Ibn Gatsi with more charges on it. There is that, but I would say if you look at victory points, the victory points and the positive narrative outcomes tend to align, I would say. Mm, so like yeah. what you're doing to gain victory points during scenarios aligns with how you get better narrative outcomes anyway. Mm-hmm. And I'll ask you, Frank, what do you get victory points for in Arkham? Yeah, clearing locations of clues, killing difficult enemies. These are the main two. Delving too deep. Yes, yes. Yeah. Occasionally a story card might have a VP yeah. on it as well. Yeah, yeah. Completing parts of the story. Well, curiously, you can then tie that to something like a campaign like Innsmouth, where the flashbacks in Innsmouth lead to a story point that is kind of not adjacent to it's it's entirely optional you can give up on flashbacks about halfway through the campaign or you can mess up the first scenario and realize you're not going to get the epilogue and you can still play well and succeed but it's specifically a part of story that's locked behind doing very well yeah. And what's interesting is that it's not necessarily tied to victory points, although some flashbacks do give you victory points. It's instead tied, it's, it's it's sort of separated from that, which I think is is really useful because it says then playing in Smith, your experience playing well in terms of XP is not the same as your experience playing well in terms of narrative. Yes. And if you tie those two things together... If you want a narrative experience, you have to then also have an efficient deck that gets you the XP you need, which yeah. is a bit trickier. So yeah, sorry, a little, little bit of a tangent. Well, no, but I think that's that's worth making because we've seen, I can think of at least two other kind of secret scenario endings for campaigns, mm-hmm. neither of which are tied to XP either. They're tied to navigating a particular narrative path through the campaign. Yeah. Achieving yeah. certain things as you go through. And actually, maybe Dream Eaters as well. Dream Eaters has quite a lot of... You can make some interesting narrative decisions there as well, can't you? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, you can. That's fascinating then, because then we have two types of reward mechanic. We have a narrative reward mechanic and a mechanical reward mechanic, if we can call it that, an XP mm. reward mechanic. And we could get to the end of a campaign. You've played one campaign, I've played the same campaign, but separately... And you might say, I've smashed it. I've hit the following story beats. That was my goal. And I might say, I've smashed it. I've got 40 XP. Look look how good my deck was at the end. Yeah. And both are valid. And that's very different experiences. And we're lucky, I think, that the game, the game and the community tolerate those two varying things. That's fortunate. You gave me an example now. I wonder... I think it was. I think I noted this down for our efficiency app, which we did last week or two weeks ago, depending on when I put it out. But that idea of if an entire community is focused on one particular thing, you end up with these conversations where someone might say, "Oh, do you think this card is good in my deck, card X?" And someone says, "Well, no, card Y is better than that." And they don't. You end up not actually answering the specific question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, interestingly, it was it was related to all this talk about Baldur's Gate because I've been replaying the original series as mm-hmm. a blade, which is a, mm-hmm. a kit of the bard class. And the whole thing about bards is that they're 
they have certain unique abilities, so they can sing, which is nice. Yeah. But more relevantly, they can kind of do a lot of different things. So you can build different bards so that they do range damage, that they cast spells, that they do their melee characters, or combinations of those. So they're mm. sort of the jack of all trades, right? That's the bards thing. Yeah. You know, you, you end up, you go on, on a thread on Reddit or on a forum somewhere, uh, or oh, how do I build a blade? And someone says, oh, well, you could do, or you could just play a fighter slash mage multi-class or dual class. It'll just be better. You're like, well, okay thanks it's not not the advice i was looking for because what they've done mm-hmm. is they've said that they, they, they you said how do i build a good blade slash bard they've heard how do i optimize my character and the way you optimize your character is by playing a different class altogether <laughs> and sometimes that, that's a valid if, if you're trying to force the system into a situation or into if you've got quite an inflexible gameplay system and you're trying to force it to do something it doesn't do it is a valid, it's valid comment to say, okay, what you're doing, it doesn't really work. Mm-hmm. You're much better starting. You'll have more fun if you start from a different position. So someone yeah. doing their, their dark horse Jenny deck, <laughs> um, which I, I, I'm, not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm just being silly there. It's you been know. shown to work. Yeah. It has been shown to work, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But you can understand someone saying, I'm going to build a dark horse deck. Can I do it in Jenny? Someone might say, maybe you want to look at a different investigator because mm-hmm. you might get a better experience. Hmm. Not necessarily, but, you know... Not necessarily. Not yeah. necessarily, but but that, that that does have an... There's an element there of, yeah, okay, I see what you're trying to do. The system doesn't necessarily support that in the same way. But then, then at the other end, you've got people who say, well, the only way you should play is optimised. So what you're yeah. trying to do, which has a different focus other than pure optimization, mm. it's not valid. I don't think we need this in the community, but it's the unspoken thing here ties into some something that I saw come into Arkham, which I thought was good, which is when you ask for deck advice, people might point out, I'm playing solo or I'm playing yes. paired with this investigator and, difficulty. and it's for this campaign yeah. and it's this difficulty. And you could also have a whole series of questions. I don't think we need them, but what are you trying to get out of your play experience? Mm. What's fun for you? What do you, you what do you want out of this? Or even that could be a starting point when when choosing to respond to someone who's asking for deck building advice. Just so I understand, you know, that person replying to you, Peter, about building a blade, they could say, "What's your purpose building a blade? Are you trying to smash the game, or is it about enjoying playing a blade?" And I think like. There is a there's a gap, and again we talked about this in our efficiency episode mm. between how good you need to be to not worry about a constant risk of failure, mm-hmm. and like the maximum, like the very maximum you can push the game to. Mm. There's a big gap there, yeah. And in that gap, you can play with decks that have fun, that use different cards, that try novel methods. Maybe you're even still trying to push yourself up the optimization curve. And increase mm-hmm. that gap between maybe so maybe you still want to crush stuff, but there's a very big gap there between what's like the most efficient and efficient enough yeah. to do that. Yeah, there's multiple difficulty levels. There's multiple ways of building certain decks. There's a lot of space. And I think this this is one of the reasons why I really liked. I, I tried to communicate this a while ago, and I don't think I did a good job. The taboo list pushes things down that optimization curve right mm-hmm. so there's very good cards on there that you can feel like you're hamstringing yourself by not using them 
Mm-hmm. But when you bring the play experience more in line with or, or, or closer to what the the developer tested and, and approved difficulty level is, mm-hmm. you have a better experience. So yeah, this mm-hmm. card is still good. Typically, it's, you know, the way those cards have been tweaked is that you can afford less other good cards at the same time because they cost more experience. Yeah, yeah. But if, if I put, I'm not just spending 3 XP or on on higher education and I'm, you know, I've got another 5 XP to spend on something else, actually, I've got to make that choice. So I'm pulling myself back down from the top end of that optimization curve more towards mm-hmm. the middle. Yeah, when those cards are pulled closer into the middle what it does is it breeds more light into the other cards that were more in the middle yeah. as well as encourages choices that then feel like the players can feel rewarded for making good choices around it as opposed to, well, there was a no-brainer here and you didn't pick it. Sometimes you need to cut the tall grass. Indeed, yeah. So I, so bring it back to sort of what we were talking about a bit ago then, Frank. Mm-hmm. What do you think, bearing in mind what we get rewarded with experience for or victory points... I mean, the clue's mm. in the name, isn't it? Victory. Yeah, yeah. Bearing in mind what we get those get those rewards for, how do you think that impacts on how people make decks? Yeah, I feel like you stung me with a question like this in our efficiency episode as well. I think <laughs> the way it, it... What it does is it's created an underlying set of questions around how people play, mm-hmm. that some of which lead into optimization, but it's particularly around... How do I get clues? How do I kill enemies? How do I more broadly advance the act? And then there's probably a subset of that as well of if we say that success is getting victory points, which it isn't always, how do I not die? How do I stay alive? All of those kinds of things. Because that that's where I think looking at failing forwards is really useful here one thing that becomes more clear the more we look at it, like you say, is like, what is success in playing Arkham? And as far as I'm aware, there aren't any scenarios that penalise you for not getting any VP. Mm. And you could even say, I'm going to have a run where I'm going to try and get as little VP as possible. That could be a fascinating kind of um, counterintuitive endeavour. What would it be like to, first of all, build a really good level zero deck, but then to deliberately avoid getting VP unless I need to get VP to, say, kill an enemy that wins the scenario. But what I'd say then is what we have adopted, broadly speaking, in the community is using VP as the shorthand for saying I did well or not. Mm. How did you do in that scenario? Oh, yeah, we we got... You don't say, oh, I got R2. You say, oh, we did great. We got 10 VP. Yeah. We smashed it. Or... Oh yeah, it was really tough for us. We only we fought really hard. We got to the end, but we only got two VP. So victory points, even though they aren't actually a, a specific in-game marker of success, have become a meta marker of success. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so all of this to say, we build our decks to try and get VP. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And my question was, how do you, how does that impact? How <laughs> how do you build a deck to get VP? Mm-hmm. Get clues, kill enemies. Get clues, kill enemies. Yeah, and I think it, it th- that is a simple solution. W- one thing I thought was interesting was that we never talked about this when we talked about the power of evasion and how evasion mm. became more important from TFA onwards. 
Yeah. Because I, a lot of people, we were at, maybe we were a bit snooty at that point because our point of view might have been, oh, well, TFA asks you to do something else and people just aren't, aren't good at adapting to that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If not on the podcast, maybe we might have said that privately. Maybe it was just me and I'm projecting onto you. Frank. Lord Snooty here. Lord He's outing Snooty himself. Here. Yeah. No, but I, I but I, I think that was it was a feeling at the time that mm-hmm. TFA does ask something different of you. Yeah. But when when you look at the game, up until that point, when it when it came to enemies, the game had said you kill them. And yeah. often, if it's a big enemy, if you're very good at killing big enemies, here's a reward for doing it. Mm-hmm. And then there was a cycle that came along that said, oh no, Don't actually, <laughs> if you kill these enemies, it's bad. And like, can you blame people for having to adjust to that? You know? Absolutely not. The, no. game, the game has trained them to do a certain thing with a mechanical reward. And then not only has it taken that away, it's replaced it with a mechanical penalty mm. for, for playing mm. the game that way. Yeah, which ties back to your Spec Ops thing, right? Of the game encourages you to do a thing, but then actually is trying to encourage you not to do that thing, but you've already learned, you've in, in yeah. kind of imbibed that this is how you do well. Yeah. Yeah. One thing we never talked about at the time was if evasion is your only enemy management strategy, you miss out on victory points because pure evasion, especially at the time, mm-hmm. didn't necessarily allow you to defeat enemies. If I had and, to guess, I'd say Waylay comes out in TFA. Yeah, quite possibly. Oh, no, it comes out at the end of Carcosa. Yeah. yeah. So, 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 yeah, legit. And even then, Waylay is not as repeatable or flexible an enemy management strategy as a machete. Yeah. Waylay doesn't work on elite enemies, for one. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, tend to be the enemies that have VPs. So I, that, that was never part of our discussion of this topic at the time, I don't think. Yeah, now I want to add something here as well. If you, listener, are sitting in an office board and want to read a really interesting write-up about this, Motox's blog, Strange Solution. He did, I'm pretty sure he's a he, or they did a whole series of articles about evasion. And one thing that they found was that actually you can evade pretty much every enemy in Carcosa without penalty. But this, this, I think, illustrates your point that because of how we play Knight of the Zealot and then Dunwich, by that point, players had already learned you kill enemies. So even though the next cycle after that didn't care if you killed enemies or not, we still, I mean, there's some some obvious counterexamples here like The Stranger, but broadly speaking, you can navigate that campaign without needing to kill many things at all. Mm. But because there wasn't a disincentive to killing enemies that the the kind of the thing that we had adopted that you kill enemies wasn't being countered strongly enough and evasion was still languishing. So yeah. there's a really fascinating thing here that it's almost like the game had already changed, but we hadn't caught up as players and we'd internalized a message that was no longer being given to us. And it was only when we were presented with TFA where it explicitly said, don't kill enemies rather than just leaving it open that that message started to be questioned. So that, it's a really fascinating extra element to it. But you're completely right. The biggest argument I would say against evasion was is v- VP and is still to this day VP. And more generally, it's a big argument against it when you're, say, playing The Gathering. You're going to get to the point at the end where there is a VP enemy with five health. You can evade it multiple times, but that won't kill it. 
Yeah. Unless you're Rita. You'd even say, like, that would be the criticism about Paimani Jones, that they have this amazing inbuilt enemy management ability until you hit big scary enemies and you miss out on VP. Yeah. Because it yeah. discards them rather than killing them. Yeah. So it it's still there. It's still present. Maybe, maybe we flip this on its head. Maybe evasion would be too good if it also could kill enemies for you. Yeah, but but is there a mechanism by which you could award victory points for evasion? Mm-hmm. Does victory point do victory points always have to be tied to defeating Murder. enemies? Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. And in that, when we go back to the idea of failing forwards and also re- reward mechanics. If we're thinking about a game in terms of what do the reward me- mechanics incentivize players to do, evasion is always going to struggle. If there is an incentive to get clues, there is an incentive to kill enemies, and there isn't an incentive to evade enemies. Yeah. Beyond a like in in game experience, oh, I made this area easier because I evaded this enemy. Yeah. Oh, it didn't retaliate against me, which is not a reward. If I can throw something interesting in, I have been playing. The Scarlet Keys with a Jenny deck. Mm-hmm. That's a big money Jenny deck. That started off as a Preston deck. <laughs> then I realised I could put it in Jenny, and crucially, I could take Green Man Medallion. Mm-hmm. And Green Man Medallion is so interesting because it's a a source of victory points or pseudo victory points mm-hmm. that is tied to how I play that deck. So, for anyone who doesn't know, that's an are they called replacements? I always get mixed up between replacements and. Yeah, it's a replacement signature card for Jenny that you can move resources onto from your pool, and for every six resources, I think it is, you mm-hmm. get a discount of one XP on the next card you upgrade or purchase or something. I can't remember how it works. Anyway, yeah. sort of, essentially, six resources equates to a victory point. You're only allowed to put three on per turn. Yes, so you can't just wait to the end of the scenario. I think put like yeah, yeah. twenty of them. Yeah, in that deck, it's 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 such an interesting way to play it because it rewards me for, for my primary, you know, the primary thing I want my deck to do. Mm-hmm. And also, so the more money I make, the more experience I can get. But it's such a such a tempting, every turn it's tempting to put another three on it once it's in play. Mm-hmm. But that then subtracts from the pool of money I've got to do the things I want my deck to do. You're well connected, you're well connected. Yeah. playing your favours, all of that sort of thing. Yeah. So I think that's interesting, very interesting, and I would love to see that element explored some more. So mm. ways of rewarding players for interacting. Doing their yeah, thing. Doing their thing, or maybe, like, I don't know how to describe it. Give them an interesting choice versus mm-hmm. stocking up on something or, or doing their core thing and impeding themselves to stock, stock up on victory points. So the better they tech into it, but they still get that kind of balancing decision, how much do I want to put in? I don't know, yeah. like, like is it relentless that when you deal excess damage, it goes onto it as resources? Mm-hmm. But imagine if that had a similar thing, if you had six, six resources on there, it gave you an XP benefit. Yeah. You'd be there trying yeah. to do excess damage to every monster, wouldn't you? <laughs> mm, mm, absolutely, you would. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. It's such a good example. It's also it's fascinating because you've joked before on the cast. Uh, I say joked, semi-serious. You know, the goal of the game is to get as many resources as possible. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah. Show you're winning. <laughs> In this Jenny deck, you have made that 
literally be the case. Yes, yes, it's you've gone from a joke to being literal text. <laughs> yeah, it rewards you in-game because of high stats. It rewards you inter-game, inter-game, intra-game, because you get more XP. If you're running Embezzled Treasure as well, you can even make your, you know, as I did when I was playing Trish, you can make your success in one scenario impact the next scenario. Yeah. So you get these, you're like my accumulated wealth has long-term impacts, which is really fascinating as a way of sort of changing up the just really strong payoffs for the for the big money style. I would love to see that across the factions if there were different idiosyncratic things that you could do that reward you in that way. Yeah. And yeah, reward you in terms of VP or in terms of other things happening. Because I guess this the, the flip side of this is you could say run a dark horse build in most survivors or you could run a tome heavy build in most seekers but at the moment i would say there aren't reward mechanics that necessarily incentivize you doing those things Mm, and that's not to say that there aren't other incentives like theme like fun like you know just general enjoyment but in terms of does that help me get vp Mm. you could argue no dark horse obviously there are lots of good Dark Horse decks out there where you could say, yeah, this helps me get VP. But you you could also then say, but if I hamstring myself in that way, you know, to what good? Imagine a card in Survivor that's you know, every turn that you uh, end your turn having no resources, you get uh, a token on it. And again, you've got XP for basically having nothing. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, or, or fewer than two cards in hand or something like that. That kind of completely Spartan style of play, that would be fascinating. Yeah, you could, you could think up them for other classes as well. So where do we go from here? I think we've touched on everything I kind of wanted to touch on. The only <laughs> thing I was going to say that I didn't was, yeah, I guess sum up, which is that more generally, if your reward mechanics incentivize undesirable play or a particular kind of play, you can't really blame players who exploit that mm. necessarily. Because yeah. it's this, it's a systemic fault rather than you're encouraging players to play the system. I, I, I've yeah. written this in the notes. Uh, I do get frustrated by people who want tournaments or organised, especially competitive games, to be free of unsporting behaviour mm. based purely on the goodwill of players. Because yeah. if you can get away with unsporting behaviour and it benefits with you within the structure of the tournament... Or the, mm-hmm. the, the trade-offs against the risk of the penalties, or the, or the, the actual penalties, if, if they're confirmed. If, if that's in the favour of the unsporting behaviour, the system literally encourages you to do it. Yeah. Because points are seen as the end goal, points mm-hmm. being prizes. This yeah. is like the, I had this conversation with someone, you know, what they call dark arts in football. But did you say it had a name in rugby? Yeah, dark arts. As dark well. arts, there you go. So, you know, if, if, if you can trade off a yellow card against the the other team not scoring a goal you will take that trade even though the behavior is what you would call unsporting mm-hmm. you can't expect people to stick to the sporting behavior purely because they want an honest experience mm-hmm. <laughs> the system needs to be designed so that there's a mechanical i would say the system needs to be designed so that there's a mechanical disincentive for unsporting behavior mm-hmm. and i get frustrated when people expect their that to happen by accident. 
Yeah, unless you incentivize sporting behavior or disincentivize unsporting behavior, these mm-hmm. things exist. So then you see tournaments that say either give out prizes to the person who comes last or reward, I don't know, other yeah. elements that are, you know, or even ask players to rank who they played against in terms of being sporting or not as a way of saying there's an extra thing being evaluated yeah. here. Yeah. And that that is so difficult to do well. Like, yeah, it's it's, it's a it's a problem that doesn't have an easy solution. Like, mm-hmm. I've been it's been to tournaments where this is what what kind of eventually put me off competitive games. Actually, the tournament structures incentivizing tournament behavior, and even just the primary method of social gatherings for a competitive game is a is a competition mm-hmm. that felt to me like it could only really encourage negative behaviours. I've been in tournaments where you get an, an award for being the most sporting. That's not given the same weight or the same depth of mm-hmm. competition, I guess. There's not there's not a meta game for being the most sporting. <laughs> it's just usually just a vote. Who got the most votes? It could itself be competitive then. You could go around trying trying to make it clear to everyone you've been sporting, which isn't the same as being sporting. You'll love this in rugby then. This ties in with this pretty neatly. So in rugby, international rugby, there are a couple of tiers. So the tier one nations are the nations that have a lot of money playing rugby, have a good history playing it. So we're talking New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, and then in the north, um, you know, England, Scotland, Wales, Ireland, France broadly speaking, tier one nations. And then you've got tier two nations, uh, the kind of up-and-comers, but also the Pacific Islands, so Fiji, Samoa, and Tonga. And they have small populations in those countries, lots of diaspora, lots of players who are either playing in France or particularly in Australia and New Zealand. And we've just got the World Cup coming up, starting, it's probably started by the time this episode comes out. And World Rugby have just added a new rule which is that if you haven't played for your country for three years, you are allowed to change your international allegiance and play for a different country. All right. The goal of this being there are Pacific Islanders who've grown up in New Zealand or Australia and played for the All Blacks or the Wallabies, and they're now no longer being selected for those teams. And it would be really nice to essentially release them and allow them to play for Fiji, Samoa and Tonga because that will enhance those countries' standings. If those countries do a bit better in the international game, they'll get more money and it will be good for the growth of the game. So on the face of it, a pretty reasonable rule. And there was some discussion around it, but there was already a a rule in rugby where if you lived in a country for a certain number of years, you could be an international for that country. So already it's a bit sketchy. Anyway, what's happened immediately of that rule has come into play is that South Africa, the Springboks, have selected players who've played for Ireland. So Springboks are the current world champions and Ireland are the number one team in the world. Mm. And the Springboks have got found some people who have were born in South Africa, have played in Ireland, but haven't played for the national team for three years. And they're now playing for the Springboks, the third mm. best team in the world. And the thing is, the Springboks aren't doing anything against the laws of the game. Mm-hmm. And in fact, their head coach came out and said, when we heard this law was coming out, we realised it's going to give an advantage to specific island teams and we thought carefully about how we could get an advantage of it. So we went and looked for players who have South African heritage and we could bring in. Yeah. It's like, it's a, a perfect example of what you've said. Unless they're disincentivized to do it, they're going to do it. It's 
you could yeah. even argue it is sporting. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. yeah, it's just like the system is part of the goal of high-level sports people and also high-level competitive players is how do I get advantage? What do I do that helps me win? Yeah, yeah. And and, and actually, I, I think we're running long anyway, uh, Frank, but mm. I just one more thing, if I could just touch on it yeah, very briefly, on, yeah, yeah. was it, it's, it's a challenge we faced when we decided to do an organised Arkham event. Mm-hmm. What, what does organised play look like when what we're used to is a competitive play where the structure is set up so that a winner is decided. Mm. What does even, what, you know, how can you have a, a convention, a social gathering of players that doesn't feature competitive play to decide a winner? Yeah. And like when you lay it out like that, it's a stupid question because you all love the same game. <laughs> yeah. You just get together and play the game, right? Yeah. 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 Interestingly, this was something I was, I chatted to Andrew Navarro just, just to casually drop a name. As you do, yeah. yeah. You but, and your new best pal. <laughs> but we talked about this at the at the UK Games Expo because mm. that's another, you know, I'm sure Andrew is keen on some form of organised play for that game at some point or, mm. you know, it would be open to the option for it. But again, what does that look like to him? What does he yeah. envisage social gatherings around the game? Mm-hmm. I think Andrew, Andrew suggested, I hope I'm not stealing his idea here, is that you could all go for a hike and talk about the game. Yeah, exactly. Do you even need to play the game yeah. if you're meeting like-minded people? Yeah, for Arkham and Flames back in the day, some people reported that the bit that they had the most fun was being in the pub yeah. afterwards, yeah. which is maybe a <laughs> damning with fake praise or organising <laughs> we've done. I don't think it was that, but yeah, totally. It's a really interesting one. Funnily enough that you mentioned that, I remember asking Maxine when we did Arkham and Flames for a little, you know, a note and she a message that we shared with players and part of her message was around that it's amazing how people come together to face the mythos like that in playing the game we're in some way playing out what the investigators are doing which is teaming up and facing unspeakable horrors and and that sort of thing and that the winning in that is very different from something mechanical i would mm-hmm. say yeah yeah it's the friends we made along the way, right? <laughs> Absolutely, yes. <laughs> okay. Right. We, we've run long, so should we, should we wrap this yeah. up? Let's wrap this up. As ever, as I said with the efficiency, the action economy episode, we aim to start the conversation rather than end it. So if you've got thoughts, feelings, if there's things you think we've missed or an angle that you think we should hear about, why not get in touch with us? We're drawn to the flame podcast at gmail.com. We're drawn to the flame on Facebook. And also, if you become a patron of the cast, you can come and chat to us on our lovely Discord. There's lots of different spaces where you can talk about the game and share your thoughts about it, and we'd love to hear from you. Peter, how can people get in touch with you? I am United in most places. I'm on, that's U-N-I-T-L-E-D. I'm on Blue Sky and uh, Discord, and I'm on Instagram as the.unitled. I forgot which ones I normally list there. (laughs) Um, So yeah, (laughs) please say hello. How about you, Frank? I'm Zoe Glass or Zozo around the place, and then I'm on Blue Sky as FB. That's E P H B E E. Feels weird not to say underscore. <laughs> that's a long username. <laughs> Thanks very much for listening. Thank you. Thank you.